0: All right, let's continue our discussion of William Butler Yeats. Let's look at Leda and the Swan. This is a, as I hope you noticed, this is a sonnet. And Leda is a character from Greek mythology. She was the mother of Helen of Troy and of Clytemnestra, uh, also of Castor and Pollux. And the father of those children was the king of the the gods, uh, Zeus, But he appeared to her, not in his godly form, because that would have killed her, he appeared to her in the form of a swan, and raped her as a swan, and then she gave birth to Helen of Troy, who was the cause of the Trojan War. Uh, Zeus was apparently doing that all the time, taking forms of various animals and raping women. It was a whole thing with him, but that's a whole other story. So the poem begins, a sudden blow the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill, he holds her helpless breast upon his breast. So it starts off with this image of the uh, of Leda and the swan, uh, the, the, the great wings, and it's very uh, particular physical images, the dark webs. Uh, now, of course, that means the the webbing of the feet, but the idea of of webs as plots or plans is so often there. And so these dark webs that she's trapped in. And then the next quatrain is asking questions: How can those terrified, vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? So she uh, it, notice how it describes her. She's terrified but vague. There's something real and substantial about the power of a god here that she can't push away. And how can body, laid in that white rush, but feel the strange heart beating where it lies? So this is really this kind of horrifying moment for Leda, uh, being raped by by Zeus in the form of a swan and powerless to stop it, so that's the octave of the sonnet. The sestet talks about the, the aftermath of this event. A shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall and burning roof and tower and Agamemnon dead. So this is he's alluding to all of this from Greek mythology because Leda was the mother of Helen, Helen of Troy. Helen was kidnapped by, uh, you know, eloped with Paris, and all of the Greek armies went to win her back and it led to the destruction of Troy, a broken wall, burning roof, and tower. And Agamemnon dead. Clytemnestra, who was the wife of Agamemnon, would kill him. Uh, so all of these tragic historical events are engendered uh, here at this moment being so caught up so mastered by the brute blood of the air did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop so he asked did, did leda understand this did she have the knowledge of uh, uh, godlike knowledge along with being overwhelmed by his power Uh, Did she realize what all the implications would be of this? And and this poem is also, I think, asking the question, do we ever realize what the implications of events are? Here these these world historical, world mythological events would be set in motion here, but probably Leda didn't know. She had no inkling of what was going to happen. Uh, We never know the kind of full ramifications of, of history that are coming through. And Yeats finds a way to get at that theme by imagining this one specific incident from Greek mythology. All right, let's look at the next poem, Sailing to Byzantium. Uh, now, uh, Byzantium, the, um, the Byzantine Empire, was for Yeats. It was kind of an ideal time of, of, in human history. Uh, and again, With a lot of Yeats's poems, there's a whole kind of system of his, uh, not only his biography, but his uh, philosophies and his his, his theories of history uh, that illuminate the poems, certainly. But the poems, I think, work very well without them. They've been popular even for people who don't know all of those, those backgrounds. So, sailing to Byzantium. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, these dying generations, at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel-crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl, commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect." So we begin that country, the country he's leaving. Remember, he's sailing to Byzantium. Is th- that's no place for old men. I'm an old man. That's a young man's country. Um, and all the images he has of it, uh, uh, birds in the trees, singing, lovers in one another's arms, what he calls the sensual music as opposed to the monuments of unaging intellect. That's the strength of the older man, not the uh, beautiful sensuality. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, useless unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. So the the advantage that the old, the old man physically is decaying, you know, just a tattered coat upon a stick, but his soul can clap and sing, and this is different from the sensual music uh, that he is leaving behind. Um, and in fact, it's, it's louder for every tatter in his mortal dress. The more aged he is, the stronger and more beautiful the music of his soul can be. Says, nor is there singing school, but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore, I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. So that's why he's leaving that country, the, the country of the young, for the country of old age. O sages, standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from that the holy fire, pern in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. So here's what he's finding in Byzantium. Uh, and this idea, God's holy fire, the gold mosaic of a wall, and... Uh, And they're going to be the singing masters. So this song that he's going to sing is going to be mastered uh, by or taught to him by these sages in Byzantium. And there's that image of Pern in a gyre, the the widening gyre that we saw in um, The Second Coming. Consume my heart away, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal. It knows not what it is and gather me into the artifice of eternity. So he's turning away from the physical things. Again, he's an old, um, uh, uh, you know, a tattered coat upon a stick, a dying animal. He says his soul is more than that. It needs to be freed from that. He says, once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enamelling to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past, or passing, or to come. So this last image is of a, a golden bird, a mechanical golden bird, something that is not of nature, something that is an artifice, the artifice of eternity, uh, something uh, that uh, beyond the natural world and this is a, the song that he 's singing uh, in uh, there, and that 's what the the song of old age is it 's a, a legacy that he is able to leave that is beyond the physical, beyond the, the realm of the physical world. Uh, it's it kind of left for eternity. And it, it's all this, the knowledge of it, what's past or passing or to come. So he looks at the present, the passing. He looks at the future, what's to come, and the, the past itself. All of that he can see from this artifice of eternity, uh, this mechanical golden bird that he will become. Uh, and this is an image of the, the artist pouring himself into his art, Uh, the craftsmanship of creating a poem like Sailing to Byzantium, which does go on singing long after W.B. Yeats, the physical body and the dying animal, is dead. Uh, He has this uh, able to transform himself through art uh, into this artifice of eternity. And he expands on this idea in the poem Byzantium. And in fact, it was quite literally a poem that was written to, to, as a response to somebody who didn't, he felt didn't quite understand uh, the, the ending of the poem Sailing to Byzantium. So now he presents not uh, the sailing, but actually Byzantium itself. The unpurged images of day recede, the emperor's drunken soldiery are abed, Night resonance recedes, night walker's song after great cathedral gong. A starlit or moonlit dome disdains all that man is, all mere complexities, the fury and the mire of human veins. So here we see, again, this dichotomy between the the merely physical and the, the higher more artistic aspirations. Uh, This moonlit dome disdains all that man is. And again, that mere complexities. Remember in the second coming, he talked about mere anarchy. Well, these are mere complexities. Uh, And and they're in the, the mire of human veins. Now again, not the dying animal, but something higher and more beautiful. Before me floats an image, man or shade Shade more than man, more image than a shade, uh, and there's a kind of a there's a spectrum here, right? Uh, this this image of a man or a ghost, a shade. Uh, well, it's more of a ghost, and it's more just purely an image, right? We go and notice the, the the progression. It goes from man to ghost to image. That's the process that he talks about in these Byzantium poems. Uh, the old age dying a dead man, a ghost, an image, an artistic image that lives on after it. For Hades bobbin bound in mummy cloth may unwind the winding path, a mouth that has no moisture and no breath, breathless mouths may summon. So here again, the idea of of something beyond the, the physical, something artistic, a breathless mouth, uh, which is kind of like the words of a poem. Uh, I hail the superhuman. I call it death in life and life in death. Um, so here, though you're dead, though you're an old man, you're dying, you're going to Byzantium, but you can create something that will last beyond you. Um, there's a, a a life beyond death here. Miracle, bird, or golden handiwork. Here we're back to that image of the, the uh, artificial golden singing bird that we saw at the end of Sailing to Byzantium. More miracle than bird or handiwork. Uh, here again, there's the spectrum. It, it goes from being a, a bird to being a handiwork to being a miracle, planted on the starlit golden bough, can, like the cocks of Hades, crow, or by the moon, embittered scorn aloud, in glory of changeless metal, common bird or petal, and all complexities of mire or blood. Here again, he's disdaining those mere complexities. Uh, This is the higher artistic uh, creation. That he has—that's uh, is transcending. That, that that idea of transcending the physical is very strong in these uh, Byzantium poems. It says at midnight, on the emperor's pavement, flit flames that no faggot feeds, nor steel has lit, nor storm disturbs. Flames begotten of flame, where blood begotten spirits come. And all complexities of fury leave. So this is a kind of a a flame that is not, again, it's not a physical flame. It's not fed by wood or it's not, not, uh, you know, you don't spark flint on steel to make this flame. And therefore, no storm can disturb it. Um, And the the blood-begotten spirits. So the spirits of people who were blood-begotten, physical at one point, uh, they come to this and leave all the and all complexities of fury leave dying into a dance that's the kind of image here kind of the, the old the 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 wisdom of the older man who has the the craftsmanship to make something dying into a dance into a work of art an agony of trance an agony of flame that cannot singe a sleeve. So again, this is images of flame. Uh, This is an artificial creation. A straddle on the dolphin's mire and blood, spirit after spirit. Now there's a a myth or tradition that the dolphins would carry the spirits of the dead to the Isle of the Blessed, so that's what he's referring to here: these dolphins of mire and blood. Again, merely physical, but moving towards the spiritual. How you get from one to the other? The, Smithy, the smithies break the flood. So the smithies, the smiths, the craftsmen who create these these beautiful golden birds, they break that flood. Uh, you're no longer in the in the ocean with the the mire and blood of physical things. The golden smithies of the emperor, marbles of a dancing floor, break bitter furies of complexity. So here again, above the mere complexities, well, you see the the marble, the mosaic on a floor, a dancing floor. Uh, Now that's nicely ambiguous. Is it a dancing floor because people dance on it? Or is it a dancing floor because the images on it uh, are, are are like a dance again, dying into a dance. Um, those images that yet fresh images beget. Remember, he said flame begotten of flame. These images beget images. So art it has carries on. It has a life on its own. Art inspires other artists. Uh, so it is a kind of an immortality. Uh, that dolphin-torn, that gong-tormented sea. So you believe that uh, dolphin-torn, the, uh, you know, kind of tearing uh, uh, the sea as they ride along, uh, gong-tormented. Remember, it started off with the idea of the gong that is telling the end of, of the day, uh, and you're leaving that all behind in this artistic uh, transcendence that you get in Byzantium. So these uh, these poems, these Byzantium poems, are talking about coming to terms with with mortality uh with old age um, he does that also in among school children uh and he begins it has sees himself as the old man he says a sixty year old smiling public man who is a wonder to these children uh so he see they they see him as a wonder and he is seeing them as a wonder. Um, he, as he is uh, walked through the long schoolroom questioning, a kind old nun in a white hood replies. Uh, so it's a, a school where the, the nuns are teaching the children, and he's, he's going through. And this, of course, sparks some thoughts about him. I says, I dream of a Ledaian body. That's a, the, the Leda, like Leda and the Swan. That would be like Helen of Troy, uh, a, a beautiful, perfect. Body bent above a sinking fire, a table that she told of, uh, told of harsh reproof or trivial event that changed some childish day to tragedy. Told, and it seemed that our two natures blent into a sphere from youthful sympathy, or else, to alter Plato's parable, into the yoke and white of one shell. So here he's talking about he imagines that that perfect beauty Helen of Troy uh was changed uh from a childish day to tragedy uh like the rape of Leda and the Swan like the uh, the fall of Troy uh it moves from uh the childish innocence to tragedy he says and thinking of that fit of grief or rage I look upon one child or the other there, and wonder if she stood so at that age. So now he's seeing the children, and thinking, "Is this what, is this what the lovely Helen of Troy looked at like at this age?" Uh, a fit of grief or rage. Well, fit can mean, as you know, emotionally throw, having a fit, um, or it's also uh, an archaic word for a poem. A fit was a, a part of a poem. Uh, so nicely he combines those things. Is this a fit, uh, is having a tantrum, or is this a fit like a stanza of a poem of grief or rage? And seeing that, you know, is this the way she looked? You know, for even daughters of the swan can share something of every pad, uh, peddler's, uh, paddler's heritage and add that color upon a cheek or hair and thereupon my heart is driven wild. She stands before me as a living child. So now he's imagining, oh yes, this is what the, the, the beautiful Helen would have looked like as a, as a living child. She would have grown into that uh, uh, beauty later. Her present image, that is the image of the beautiful Helen of Troy, floats into the mind. Did quattrocento fingers fashion it, hollow of cheek, as though it drank the wind and took a mess of shadows for its meat? So he's imagining the Quattrocento, the Renaissance painters, painting a beautiful image of that face. And I, though never of Ledean kind, had pretty plumage once. Enough of that. Better to smile on all the, that smile and show there is a comfortable kind of old scarecrow. So here again, he's thinking about his own mortality. He says, well, I was never, like, had that Ledean body, that Helen of Troy, perfectly beautiful body. But I had some pretty plumage once, Uh, not so much anymore. Now I'm a scarecrow. Now now I'm not a bird with pretty feathers. I'm actually the scarecrow that scares away the birds with pretty feathers. Uh, That's all I am now. And in the next stanza, he asks a question. What youthful mother, a shape upon her lap, honey of generation, had betrayed? and that must sleep, shriek, struggle to escape as recollection or the drug decide, would think her son, that she but see that shape with sixty or more winters on its head, a compensation for the pang of his birth or the uncertainty of his setting forth. So now he's thinking, what mother, you know, seeing her, her, her child in her lap, What if she had the vision of of what he would be like when he was an old man like me, you know, 60, 70 years later? Would you think, was that worth it to to do all that, to go through all that pain of birth? Plato thought nature but a spume that plays upon a ghostly paradigm of things. This is the idea, the, the Platonic idea is that there are a realm of pure ideas, and our physical world is just a mere shadow of that. We're we're kind of imperfect versions of the the perfect world of ideas. Soldier Plato, soldier Aristotle played the uh, the taws upon the bottom of a king of kings. Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. Um, world famous golden-thighed Pythagoras. Fingered upon a fiddlestick or strings, what a star sang, and careless muses heard, old cloths upon old sticks to scare a bird. So he's going through these great philosophers—Plato, Aristotle, Pythagoras—and he sums them up: old clothes upon old sticks to scare a bird. Here we're back to the scarecrow image. Uh, here we're talking about these all these ideas, and again, this contrast is in the Byzantium poems between the, uh, the 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 sensuality of youth and the pu- more purely intellectual pursuits of old age as both nuns and mothers worship images okay so the mother worshiping the image of her child the nuns worshiping the images of god but those the candle's light are not as those that animate a mother's reveries but keep a marble or a bronze repose, and yet, they too break hearts. O oh, presences that passion, piety, or affection knows, and that all heavenly glory symbolize. O oh, self-born mockers of man's enterprise. So here, again, it's like the contrast in the Byzantium poems, where you have the the, the world of of images, of icons, of ideas. It says those too can break hearts. Uh, they're not the, the kind of the sensual music of a, a living baby, uh, but they are, but they too have a power. And that, that again that that spectrum that dichotomy of youth and old age are, are here, also of the physical and the spiritual, uh, the the higher and lower registers. Labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised to pleasure soul. So here he's trying to integrate body and soul, and it's through labor, work, and it's blossoming, again, gives flower, and dancing, uh, where there's not a, you don't have to bruise the body to please the soul. You don't have to, uh, uh, you know, mortify the flesh to have a, a spiritual revelation, nor beauty born out of its own despair. That's kind of what happens in the Byzantium poems. You've lost the the, the plumage that you had as a young man, and you you kind of create images of beauty out of despair of not having any of your own. Nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. Uh, O chestnut tree, great-rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O oh, body swayed to music, O oh, brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? So here he's finding an integration of these things. He says, if you look at the tree, is the tree the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl, the trunk? Well, it's all of those things. And so all of the stages, by implication, all the stages of human life from the the um, the young school children to the old dying man they're all part of the same thing uh, a great rooted blossomer and that should remind you of the image in a prayer for my daughter uh the the, the rooted tree uh that that uh, he wanted her to be and and that final question you know how can we know the dancer from the dance a dance is a work of art a dancer is a mere human being, but they're completely united. Uh the the dancer is the dance. You can't have a dance without a dancer. And so too the youth and age, the the, the young, uh the, the country for that's no country for old men and the country for old men, uh are a continuum. Uh they they go together. You can't have one without the other. They're all part of the same tree. They're dancer and dance together. So he ends with this very powerful image of unity, how the youth and age, uh, the body and soul uh, are all united together somehow. Now let's look at Crazy Jane Talks with the Bishop. Uh, Yeats had a whole series of Crazy Jane poems that he wrote. They're essentially, he's writing in the, the voice of Crazy Jane, and she also has conversations with various people this one is a, and the bishop is one of the recurring characters um so it begins i met the bishop on the road and much said he and i those breasts are flat and fallen now those veins must soon be dry live in a heavenly mansion not in some foul sty so here Again, this is a similar theme that he's been dealing with in these poems: Byzantium and Among Schoolchildren. Uh, your physical body is dying, right? The, your your breasts are flat and fallen, so you need to live in higher things—a heavenly mansion, not the foul sty of the of the the uh, physical world. And Crazy Jane replies, "Fair and foul are near of kin, and fair needs foul." I cried, "My friends are gone." But that's a truth, nor grave nor bed denied, learned in bodily lo- lowliness, and in the heart's pride. So he's saying, look, well, fair and foul are near akin. You know, a foul sty. Well, the, that's where the fair comes from. You can't separate the fair and the foul. You can't separate the 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 spirit and the body. As a woman can be proud and stiff, when on uh, when on love intent, but love. Has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement, for nothing can be soul or whole that has not been rent. So the crazy Jane has her own take on this uh, dichotomy of body and soul, of youth and age. Uh, she says that uh, a woman can be proud and stiff when uh, uh, intent on love, but love itself—where does lo- where is love? It's pitched its mansion in the place of excrement. I notice she's repeating that word, the heavenly mansion the bishop talked about. She's talking about this mansion in the place of excrement, shit. It says the, the, the very basest kind of physical reality. That's where love comes from. Um, and she says, nothing can be soul or whole that has not been rent. So you can't have a reunification of, of, of body and soul until you've Rent them apart. Uh, it's that separate those separations, those dichotomies that allow for the transcendence. And again, there were a whole series of of Crazy Jane poems where she has similar kinds of of uh, debates with the, the the bishop. Is usually her kind of sparring partner. Uh, the bishop is representing um, a more kind of elevated spiritual idea, but also one that's cut off from the the, the physical reality. And so Jane and the bishop uh, kind of uh, spar back and forth in trying to resolve that. Let's look at the poem Lapis Lazuli. Now, Lapis Lazuli is a kind of of semi-precious stone. Uh, It's a deep, rich blue color, and uh, it's it's kind of like jade. It's often carved into uh, uh, ornaments, Uh, but uh, whereas jade is green, Lapis Lazuli is blue. So, I have heard that, hysteri- that hysterical women say they are sick of the palate and fiddle-bow of poets that are always gay, for everybody knows, or else should know, that if nothing drastic is done, aeroplane and zeppelin will come out, pitch like King Billy, uh, bomb balls in, in, until the town lies beaten flat. So, we begin the, the poem, these hysterical women are saying that they don't want poets. They don't want the palette that the the artist would use, the the fiddle bow of the musician. Uh, And again, these poets that are always gay. Now, for Yeats, the, the word gay would not have had any of the connotations of homosexuality that it does for us now. It meant simply happy and uh, almost happy, carefree, frivolous. Uh, that's what how poets are acting. And how can they act that way? Don't you know that if nothing is done, the, the, uh, the war is going to come and crush us. We're going to be destroyed. And this poem was written in the uh, late nineteen thirties. World War Two was on the horizon, and everyone could see that you know that they'd seen World War One, and they could see that World War Two was was coming fast at them. He says, "How can you waste your time, you know, with uh, painting paintings and your fiddle bows and your, your, your these gay poets that are just frivolous?" So the rest of the poem is kind of uh, Yeats's answer to that. All perform their tragic play. There struts Hamlet, there is Lear, there's Ophelia, that Cordelia. Yet they, should the last scene be there, The great stage curtain about to drop, If worthy their prominent part in the play, Do not break up their lines to weep. They know that Hamlet and Lear are gay, Gaiety transfiguring all that dread." So here he's saying, "Okay, well, yes, this tragic play. When you're watching a tragic play, Hamlet, King Lear, all these Shakespearean characters," uh, and says, "Yet when they get to the the, the end, the curtain drop, uh, they not break up their lines to weep. That is, they don't. You know, when the actor is playing the the part, they don't get so carried out away in the tragedy of it that they weep themselves. It's 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 a game. It's their play acting." They are gay. The gaiety transfigures all that dread. The fact that it is art uh, makes us able to, uh, uh, again, to transfigure the, the tragedy. All men have aimed at, found and lost, black out, heaven blazing into the head, tragedy wrought to its uttermost. Though Hamlet rambles and Lear rages and all the drop scenes drop at once, Upon a hundred thousand stages, it cannot grow by an inch or an ounce. So he said, you know, all of, you know, however many times you do Hamlet or or Lear, it's not going to change things by an inch or an ounce. Uh, it, it's, it's not about that. It's not about, you know, attending to current events and worrying about war. Uh, it, it's about something else. He says, on their own feet, they came or on shipboard, camelback, horseback, assback, muleback, old civilizations put to the sword. Now he's talking about the sweep of history. Uh, there, there have been countless civilizations that were destroyed and the refugees pouring out of them. Then they and their wisdom went to rack. No handiwork of Callimachus who handled marble as if it were bronze, made draperies that seemed to rise when sea wind, uh, sea wind swept the corner stands so all that beautiful art the the, the the statues of Callimachus they're all gone, they've all been destroyed by by war and time. His long lamp chimney, shaped like the stem of a slender palm, stood but a day. All things fall and are built again. And those that build them again are gay. So this, this frivolousness is what rebuilds the fallen civilizations. You're worried about civilization being pounded flat. Well, guess what? The people who, who and, and it, it will, it may destroy all of our art and civilization, but it will be rebuilt again. And it will be rebuilt by these, these poets you don't like, who are always gay, who are always uh, uh, bubbling with in, creative energy. And then he gets to the image of the lapis lazuli. Two Chinamen, behind them a third, are carved in lapis lazuli. Over them flies a long-legged bird, a symbol of longevity. The third, doubtless a serving man, carries a musical instrument. So here is just a description of this beautiful Chinese carving of three men, there's a bird there, one of, them, one of the men has an instrument, uh, that this is, the again, a, a frivolous piece of art. Every discoloration of the stone, every accidental crack or dent, seems a watercourse or an avalanche or lofty slope where it still snows, though doubtless plum or cherry branch sweetens the little halfway house those Chinamen climb towards. So he's saying all of the little imperfections uh, increase the the, the beauty of it. And notice he's kind of getting carried away with it. Uh, all of this, it sweetens the little halfway house those Chinamen climb towards. Um, And I delight to imagine them seated there, there, on the mountain and the sky. So... This is kind of like Keats Ode on a Grecian Urn where he was imagining the, the the city that these people had left there. He's imagining okay there's you see them climbing towards the mountains. I can imagine them there uh in that in that little halfway house that they're climbing to uh and what it will be like there. I it, it delights me to see all of that. Um there on the mountain and the sky. And all the tragic scene, on all the tragic scene, they stare. So when they get there, when they look at this, in this little halfway house and look down the mountain, they'll see all of this tragic scene, like, uh, like the tragedies in Shakespeare, uh, like the, 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 the tragedies of fallen civilizations. They'll stare they'll on that. One asks for mournful melodies. Accomplished fingers begin to play. So here, as they're looking out on the tragic scene, they ask for sad music. Their eyes, mid many wrinkles, their eyes, their ancient glittering eyes, are gay. So even it, here they are, looking out over all these tragedies, hearing the sad songs, even at the heart of that is this gaiety, this artistic exuberance uh, that, uh, that is endlessly creative. So this is uh, Yeats' answer to, well, how can you worry about writing poems when, you know, Hitler is going to take over Europe? He says, Well, this is the most important thing. What do you mean? Yeah, the, look, civilizations have risen and fallen. Art keeps going on. Uh, art lasts forever. Uh, it, it, it's, as, it's as central to being a human being as anything is. And that, that gaiety that you reject in art is, for Yeats, the most important thing. All right, let's look at The Circus Animal's Desertion. This is uh, written very, very late in Yeats's life, one of the, the last poems that he wrote, and it's kind of one that is looking back on his own poetic career. I sought a theme and sought for it in vain. I sought it daily for six weeks or so. Maybe at last, being but a broken man, I must be satisfied with my heart. Although winter and summer till old age began, my circus animals were all on show. Those stilted boys, that burnished chariot, lion and woman, and the Lord knows what. So he's been looking for a theme and can't find one. uh, And says, I I maybe have to just look in my own heart. Um, And he says, but my circus animals, all of the, the poems that he had before, they were on display before. And he goes through in this second section of the poem and uh, talks about uh, three of these uh, circus animals that he had. Um, What can I but enumerate old themes? First, the sea rider Osrin, uh, led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams, vain gaiety, vain battle, vain repose, themes of the embittered heart, or so it seems, that might adorn old songs or courtly shows. But what cared I that set him on to ride? I starred for the bosom of his fairy bride. So here he was writing about this old Irish legend, but he says, I I really didn't care about that. Uh, That wasn't anything that was interesting to me. And that was a, a, a long poem that he wrote when he was a younger man. Next he talks about a play he wrote, The Countess Kathleen, uh, it says, she, pity-crazed, had given her soul away, but masterful heaven had intervened to save it. I thought, my dear, must her own soul destroy. So did fanaticism and hate enslave it. And this brought forth a dream, and soon enough this dream itself had all my thought and love." All right, so this is, again, an allusion to Maud Gunn. That's the woman that he's talking about, and he actually did write this play. It was kind of an allegory of her, Um, and he was afraid that her fanaticism and hate would destroy her heart. That was her selling her soul to the devil. So he made this dream, this poem, this play about it, and then the dream itself had all my thought and love. So this came out of something that he was passionate about, but he fell in love with the the work of art itself. And then the fool and the blind man stole the bread, Cuchelan fought the ungovernable sea. This is the, the, again, Irish folklore hero who uh, tried to fight the sea. Um, Heart mysteries there. And yet when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me. Character isolated by a deed to engross the present and dominate memory. Players and paintings painted stage took all my love, and not those things that they were emblems of. So he all of the, the 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 themes that he was going to write about, uh, they were just a starting point. He fell in love with the poetry itself, with the dream, the painted stage, the players, the performance of them is what had his attention, not the the origins of them. Those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began. So here these images that he's made, his earlier poems, they again grew in pure mind. This is like in the Byzantium poems, that kind of pure artistic creation. He says, but out of what began, where did they start? A mold, And he answers that question. A mold of refuse or the sweepings of a street. Old kettles, old bottles, and a broken can. Old iron, old bones, old rags. That raving slut who keeps the till. So they all began in these, in these uh, very mundane, earthly, physical things. Now that my ladder is gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start. And the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. So the origins of all of this kind of beautiful, pure mind uh, poems that he had, it was always in, as he says, the rag and bone shop of the heart. Uh, All of those, those rags, bones, old iron, old kettles, old bottles, that's where all of this starts. Now, you may transform that into something that is beautiful and artistic and perfect, but it begins in the, in, in the conflicts of the human heart. Uh, and very interestingly, that's kind of where Yeats ends. Uh, he comes back to that beginning. And you can see how this fits with the, the Byzantium poems, leaving or the, among school children, leaving uh, youth, leaving the physical, going to a higher spiritual, but never actually leaving it. They're always connected in some ways. Um all right well that's all the time we have for Yates um for next time I would like you to read James Joyce's The Dead. Uh The Dead is the last short story in a series of short stories uh, published together as The Dubliners. And Joyce's short stories are famous for the the climax of them being what he would call and what has become a common literary term, an epiphany. That is a moment of realization. The character has a moment of insight into himself uh, that comes at the end of the story. And I want you to think about what the main character, Gabriel, has as that insight. Uh, You'll see he has a series of uncomfortable encounters with women uh, throughout the the, the poem. uh, The the story takes place at a, a Christmas party. And he There are several women that he talks to that he just kind of feels embarrassed about his interactions with them. Think about what those interactions tell us about his character and finally at the near near the end of the poem there 's a kind of an awkward interaction he has with his own wife, and how all of those and all of the events that happen to him at the at the party lead to that final epiphany that he has and that insight he has at the end of the story so Uh, Thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you about James Joyce's The Dead next time.